Good afternoon. Thank you for, for taking time out of prime nap time to come here and be with us. Prime nap time uh, to come and be with But the Braves are the Sunday night baseball game tonight, so you're not having to, to miss, miss that. That's usually my nap uh, time. I'm glad that you're here, and um, thank you so much for being part of this. I'll just, just make a couple of, of little announcements, and then I'm going to introduce to you um, our Board of Stewards chairperson and the chairperson on what we're calling our discernment process is Pathways for Our Future. Um, Mark Condra is going to come and say a couple things and pray. And then I'm going to introduce Dee Dowdy, who, who I, you know, you always say needs no introduction, but he's, he's been... Uh, at our church a couple of times um, over the years with um, as our Holy Week speaker and y'all know him anyways just up the road and so I'm going to introduce him and then I'm going to turn it over um, just um, in the way of announcements we are going to have two more of these sessions you're welcome to come to any and all of them invite your friends to come we're streaming them to our website and so if you have a friend that didn't get to come that wants to go back and watch it later they can um, we are, our, our second opportunity is going to be September the 11th, and that will be same time, same place with, with different speakers. We're going to have um, Reverend Eddie Gooch and Reverend Belinda Reeves will be our speakers that, that afternoon. And then on October the 2nd, we're going to have Reverend Kevin Thomas and, Re and Reverend Harvey Beck, and that will be our, our third and final set of speakers. This coming Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, Bishop Deborah Wallace Pageant will be at Christ Central United Methodist Church in our district. And I, I know Wednesday night is not a very convenient night for us that have churches and things like that. But we're going um, to take the time, I hope, to go and hear what our, our bishop has to say. Um, let me uh, pray, and then I'll give a couple of words of it in um, instructions, and then I'll hand this over to Mark. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, pour your spirit out upon us as we gather in this place this afternoon, and we pray that everything we do would be uh, in a spirit of love and cooperation with each other, and that we would reflect you in all of our attitudes. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, many of you have been to, to these kind of things before. Um, a format we have set up is, is 30 minutes for the speaker, 30 minutes set aside for questions and answers, and then a break, and then our next speaker will be introduced. If, uh, if, the, if Dee is, um, doesn't take up all the time, we'll just have a longer break. Uh, that way we'll start the, the next uh, speaker at the time we had planned. You're long-winded, so... Uh, They're agreeing with, with. okay, just, um, just kind of housekeeping things. Restrooms are through this door. We have uh, refreshments that our uh, Pathways Committee has put together out here. Um, when these micro handheld microphones, when we do question and answer, will be the ones that uh, Mark Condra and myself will, will bring around to you so that everybody can hear a question that you have to answer, uh, to ask. Uh, remember, make the questions relative to, to what the speaker is speaking about. And this, these are 
our, our questions and, and not a chance for, for everybody to give a speech about what they think because we'll be here all night if we did that. So um, let me at, at this time introduce Mark Condra. Mark? Thank you, Sam. I appreciate the introduction. I want to uh, welcome, on behalf of the board stewards, welcome everybody to Gadsden first. This is your first time. Uh, we're glad to have you here. If you're back with us again, thank you. Our doors are always open to you, regardless of your affiliation or your denomination. It's our pleasure to have you here tonight. Before the prayer, I want to thank um, our six members of our task force that Sam talked about, our Pathways for the Future. Uh, it's been our goal, this task force goal, is to create a forum or a process for a series of listening sessions then a process our church will go through that is balanced and fair. And um, this uh, task force consists of six members. We have three members that have a preference to disaffiliate. We have three members that have a preference to, to remain. I'll introduce them to you in just a second. Um, but this process has not been easy. It's uh, certainly not been popular and uh, certainly not without criticism that we've gone through. But I'm pleased to say we start off with a plan. It's been very fluid. We've adapted as we've gone. And as they say, I like where we landed the plane with our three listening sessions. Our work's not done, but I am very pleased where we are today. So and I think you will be too. Um, the, um, a little bit about the, the, these task members. Um, you know, while they have different positions, right, they all share one common characteristic. They love this church. They love this church. And I think it serves as a model for all of us that we can work together. We may not necessarily agree, but we can treat each other with Christian love, grace. So I'm really pleased to, to have an honor to, to work with these task force members and our church staff. But um, those representing the position <clears throat> to disaffiliate with Debbie Hiltz, Joni Smith and Harry Vance. Those that, that wish to remain are Keith Copeland, Karen Owen, and George Varner. You'll have an opportunity to meet them during our break between our speakers. Please take a few minutes and thank them for this task. It's not over yet. They have, we still have a lot of work to do, but uh, they, they've dedicated some serious time and energy and effort toward this, and they're to be uh, thanked, and so please do so. Um, if you would, please, bow your heads. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father God, thank you for opening your doors to us tonight. Please open our hearts and our minds as well. We celebrate that everything we have is because of you, God. We pray for you to wrap your loving arms around us. Help us to communicate openly and freely, even when the subject matter is uncomfortable. Help us to remember we're not here to judge, we're here to learn. There are many here today with emotions pulling at us. Some of us may be confused, angry, feel abandoned, or just uninformed. Lord, give us peace, comfort, and grace. Open our minds, heal our hearts, give us strength that only comes when we faithfully obey you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, 
Uh, I, I, we're starting a little bit late, so we're still going to give you 30 minutes in case anybody's wondering. Sometimes it takes longer to, to say hello than, than we thought. Um, Dee Dowdy, I've known Dee and Bridget. Uh, some people I've known so long that they, know, they, they call me Sammy instead of Sam. Uh, and Tammy and I have been married almost 30 years, and when we, we first started um, dating, she said, uh, Sammy and Tammy is a little too cute, so I'm going to call you Sam. So I've gone by Sam for 30 years. So if people that know me long enough to call me Sammy have known me a while. And uh, I've, I've always loved Dee and Bridget and still do and still will. So Dee, that's about all I know to say. Oh, you've got to. Ha, ah, whoa. <laughs> uh, my name is Dee Dowdy. I'm the pastor of Rainbow City United Methodist Church. But I want to share a couple of stories with y'all before I begin uh, that happened to me and to happen to Sammy when we were starting out. Uh, one Sunday in one of my early appointments, uh, after the sermon, this precious little boy came up to me and said, Pastor D, when you grow up, I'm going to give you some money. And I thought, well, that's nice, but why would you want to do that? He said, because my daddy says you're the poorest preacher he's ever known. And Sammy, years ago when he was at Hagelberg, I had to look that up to remember where it was, he had a funeral home director to call him and ask him if he would say a few words at graveside for a deceased person who had no family. And they felt like that somebody ought to be there to do, say a few words. Well, Sammy was new in the area, so he took off to the time and place where he thought it was going to be. And this is back in the days before we had GPS. When he arrived at the place... And he saw two guys standing there with their shovels and a backhoe. So he ran up to where it was, being late there. And so he says his prayer over what he thought was the graveside. And then as he walked away, one of the guys said, well, I've seen it all now. A preacher praying over a septic tank. <laughs> Honestly, folks, I, I just felt led to have a little humor in the room before we begin. Because we're all stressed out over this. I think all of us feel that. Uh, but I think we all have to remember that we're here because we do love the Lord. Again, my name is Dee Dowdy. I was born at the Holy Name of Jesus Hospital in 1959. I graduated from Emma Sansom High School with Joni Smith. And Mark Condra finished the year before me. I went to college, junior college at Gadsden State, and my Methodist roots go way, way back. So I want you to hear this part. My great-grandparent Young were Methodist and were part of the ones, the family started Young's Chapel Methodist Church at an Hoax Bluff. Their daughter, Vera Durham, my grandmother, was a dyed-in-the-wool Methodist. And she was very proud of her first grandson when he became a Methodist pastor. She was one of the very first founding members of Bellevue United Methodist Church on the mountain. My mom went to Bellevue way back before it was even in the building that it was before the one now. Back in the day when they called it was a tabernacle where they shared it with some other churches. And then I was baptized in Bellevue Methodist Church's second building where as you go up the mountain past what used to be Dottie, uh, 
Clayton's Cafe, you now see Nakalula Church of God. Where my dad was a custodian, uh, a volunteer custodian. So I want you to hear that my Methodist roots go way back. In 1994 at Taylor Memorial United Methodist Church, I finally accepted God's call into my life to be a Methodist pastor. And I've served churches since 1995. And as you know, we have a pretty long process. I had to finish college, so I was not ordained and everything I had to do till 2008. So I want you to know I've been blessed to serve every church I've served at. So it breaks my heart to have to share the reasons why I will be leaving the United Methodist Church. I know my great-grandparents, my grandmother, as well as my mom and my dad, as well as my wife, who is a retired United Methodist Church, would and do affirm my stance that the Methodist Church we knew and loved have left us. So I present my 10 reasons why I personally feel I will be leaving the United Methodist Church. These reasons do not necessarily reflect the views of everyone at Rainbow City United Methodist Church, uh, but they reflect mine. I provided a handout for you, and if you'll notice, there's a lot of things on this handout that you have that I won't be covering, like some facts you know, and then some things that have happened since uh, roughly 2016. I'm not going to spend all the time talking about those, but I have given you uh, a handout that covers all that and my 10 points, you will also notice that I have given you documentation of where I got this from. Also, I know it's really not normally a good thing to do to read to people, but folks, I've worked a long time on this and because it is so serious, uh, I hope you don't mind, but I'm gonna read what I've written. I find in really important times like this, I'm better to do that. So the reason why I'm planning to leave United Methodist Church, first of all, the differences over the authority and the interpretation of scripture. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote in his journal dated July 24, 1776. He said, I read Mr. Jennings' admired tract on the internal evidence of the Christian re religion. He is undoubtedly a fine writer but whether he is a Christian, deist, or atheist, I cannot tell. If he is a Christian, he betrays his own cause by averring that all scripture is not given by the inspiration of God, but the writers of it were sometimes left to themselves and consequently made mistakes. Nay, if there are any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there's one fault in that falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. I believe that God inspired the writers of the Old and New Testament to write what they did. God provided us history, but he also provided us the guide for life and the fundamentals of the Christian faith. I believe when dealing with theological issues, scripture is always primary. It defines for us what God defines as sin and not us defining it. It shows us the way of salvation and how to live out our Christian witness. I also believe in the 2,000-year-old-plus interpretation of Scripture rather than what the newer people are interpreting it to be. These New Age interpretations, 
that seem to want to bring down God's word to our level so we can do what we want and yet feel as if we are following God. Yet, in many, many of my progressive colleagues do not believe that God inspired all the scriptures. They cite some difficult things to read in the Bible, such as where God is, showing, is shown to be one who's calling for the killing of people, as being times when God did not do, or they did not do what God wanted, but instead they blamed God for it. They say we should divide the Bible up into three buckets. Scriptures that express God's heart, character, and timeless will for human beings. Scriptures that express God's will for a particular time, but no longer binding. And scriptures that never fully express the heart, character, and will of God. But I ask this, who gets to decide who go, what goes in what bucket? And if we begin to unravel the scriptures, how do we really know anything about Jesus? Apparently, Ken Carter, one of our bishops, believes that society should impact scripture and our doctrine. For he said, and you can look up my reference, he said this, while I believe in our traditional orthodox faith that's rooted in the scriptures, I also have always believed that we need to adapt our doctrine and our scriptures to changing life circumstances that people have. Also, I've heard two pastors who, with whom I have great respect equate the issue of slavery and females in ministry to the question of full and complete inclusion of LGBTQI plus persons. While it is evident that slavery was part of the lives of people in both the Old and the New Testament, I know of no pas passage where God condones the practice. In fact, God admonished his slaveholders to treat their servants as fellow human beings. Regarding females in ministry, many will say the church changed its mind even though the Bible seems to prohibit them from ever holding positions of leadership. Therefore, the church should change its mind about the practice of homosexuality being a sin and thus people living in this lifestyle should be able to come pastors, become pastors. But is, that be, but is being a practicing female ever considered to be sinful? Also, it is said that God called De we should note that God called Deborah to be a judge. Jesus had females in larger groups of disciples. One was the first evangelist for Christ that was the woman at the well. The first person to proclaim the risen Lord was a woman, and Paul recognized Phoebe as a deaconess in Romans 16.1, which was an official position in the church. So I hold that trying to claim these issues together is attempting to compare apples to oranges. I've heard two other arguments concerning the ordination of practicing homosexuals being eligible to be ordained. It goes something like this. Our denomination ordains divorcees who marry, so why not ordain, practice, why not ordain practicing homosexuals? First, as a divorced and remarried person myself, I would never try to say that divorce is not sinful. Yet others argue that living as a practicing homosexual is not a sin. Divorce is an extremely painful event that happened 
something that I was unwill that was I was unwillingly forced upon me, and something that the Board of Ordained Ministry in the Kentucky Conference, where I was serving at the time, took very seriously, and had to question me a lot. I've also heard the centrist and progressive argument that Jesus never addressed the issue of same-sex marriage or homosexuality. However, I agree with Dr. Ben Witherington, a world-renowned New Testament scholar, who says that Jesus never addressed it because the Jews would have known that, that the behavior of same-sex copulation was sinful in God's eyes. Jesus did speak about divorce, though, because of the flippant way the Jews had to come to accept this sin. I also agree with Witherington, who says the Bible is not so concerned with the proclivity a person may have toward any particular sinful behavior, but is more concerned with living out that sinful lifestyle. Just as a man or woman who may be strongly drawn to some other sinful behavior or refuses to give in to those desires, they crucify their flesh, they push down their fleshly urges in order to follow Christ and thus are eligible for ordination. Thus I hold that should a sinner who ever repents of sin and seeks to live as Christ wants, should be eligible for ordination. Some, uh, for none of us are without the struggles between the spirit and the flesh. For the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, 17, the old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite what the fleshly nature wants. These forces are constantly fighting against each other, and your choices are never far from this conflict. Also, there are differences over the definition of Christian love. Many progressive theologians and pastors I have read and heard speak about Jesus' command that we are to love the Lord our God with all that we are and to love others as ourselves. They speak about Jesus' words concerning judging others. They, like me, know that none of us are perfect. Therefore, we should never look down on other people's sin like it was worse than our own. And I totally agree that no Christian should ever use derogatory or crude slang language when speaking of a person of the LGBTQI community, for they are loved by God. But they seem to suggest that those who would disagree with their stance are unliving, unloving, and cruel. This is simply not a fair assessment. For many, including myself, have dear loved ones who are practicing homosexuals or bisexuals, and we love them dearly. But many of my progressive and centrist friends and colleagues fail to notice what Jesus, that Jesus spoke about repentance of sin many times, such as the woman caught in adultery, the man who was healed by Jesus by the pool of Bethsaida, uh, then when speaking to a crowd in Luke 13 and so forth. Why did Jesus speak about repentance? And how does this match the idea of what some people are calling the modern Jesus? The modern Jesus never speaks about sin, repentance, and makes everything about humanistic love. But the biblical Jesus knows the impact that sin has on the human-God relationship, as well as what it does to humanity itself. Sin never builds up. It always tears down. 
For sin, like Satan, seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Therefore, the love of Christ compels us to show the sacrificial love of Christ, but it also requires the church to warn the world of the impact of sin, not in an arrogant, self-righteous way, but in a way that causes us to be like the prophet Jeremiah, who wept over the sin of the people, or Paul, who was willing to give up his own salvation for the good of others. Our Lord also gave up his life that we might be saved. It's like the old question, what is more, the more loving thing to do? Let a child play in traffic and never say anything about it or warn them of the dangers. The progressive quote, 1 John 4, 7, where it is written, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. And anyone who is born of God and knows God, Therefore, they argued that the love between two committed individuals is holy love, whether it's between a husband or a wife or between two committed same-sex couples. But that can lead to the slippery slope of saying that a 35-year-old man and a 14-year-old girl who love each other and are committed to other and act as if they're married is holy love. The word, the word Jesus, where God is described as in 1 John 4, 7 is agape, the sacrificial godly love. It is not philo, the brother-sistery love, or eros, sexual love. Therefore, to use this verse and to tie it into their argument seems inappropriate to me. Also, a difference over Christology. I believe that the human being we know from history as Jesus Christ was also the eternal Son of God, who with the Holy Spirit has no beginning. He yet, because of love, he became flesh and dwelt among us through the work of the Holy Spirit and the, worm, the womb of a virgin. I believe that he lived a sinless life despite his humanity. I believe that he did perform miracles such as walking on water, raising the dead, and healing the sick. I believe that he rose from the dead in bodily form and that he was ascended back to the heavens where he now acts as our great high priest. Yet some of our own bishops and others whose roles have been his, should have been to historically defend the faith do not believe some of the tenets of the faith. In 2003, United, Bishop, United Methodist Bishop Joseph Sprague delivered an address at Isla Seminary, an official United Methodist Seminary, where he said, the myth of the virgin birth is not a historical fact. He did not believe that Jesus' resurrection involved the resurrection of his physical body. Also, Karen Elevito, the practicing lesbian bishop in the West, seems to deny the divinity of Christ when he says that Jesus had to overcome his own prejudice and bigotry. Both of these bishops continued to be bishops. Now, Sprague has since retired. I also believe that we're going to have to split over our differences of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. As an orthodox traditionalist, I believe that when Jesus said, when he spoke, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me Though they die, yet shall they live. 
And I firmly affirm what the apostle Peter said in Acts 4. For there is no one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them other than Jesus. Yet the United Methodist Church seems to celebrate itself for being the big tent where anyone can believe whatever they want and be considered part of the church. In fact, we did have a commercial several years ago that said, find your path and share your journey. Also, I hold with John Wesley, who said that just because a person was baptized as a child does not make a person a Christian. He said a person should come to some point in the time when they say yes to Christ's offering of grace. Yet across United Methodism, evangelism, and leading persons to the saving grace of Jesus Christ seem to become a dirty word. Also, rather than leading people to come to a personal relationship with Christ, to acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, many United Methodists believe that being a Christian means only obeying the teachings of Jesus, but, and, never, and to really just never have a mental assent to His deity. I also claim that there's a loss on the emphasis of sin, redemption, and sanctification. While Methodism is known for its emphasis on grace rather than condemnation, Methodist has, has been historically known as a denomination that seeks to help people flee from the wrath to come. Methodism in its beginning spoke of repentance of sin, justification through faith in Christ, and the process of sanctification through which a sinner moved to becoming a saint. We also know that while Jesus was full of grace and love, he spoke on numerous occasions about repentance from sin. Yet the word sin has fallen out of the dialogue of many United Methodist pulpits as pastors do not wish to offend, but rather please their congregants. Even before Holy Communion is taken in many of our gatherings at a, as a conference, I've noticed that we skip over the prayers of confession and pardon and go straight into the great thanksgiving. Thus, many United Methodists may not even mean to, but they're promoting what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without regarding repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. If sin were not important in the God-humanity relationship, why did Jesus have to die for us? Of course, in seminary I learned that many of our progressives say that is not the case at all. For if God sent his son to die for us, that would be divine child abuse. The claim that has been made by some United Methodists seem to suggest that we Orthodox Christians would tell people coming to our church for the first time that we would welcome them, but that you need to know that X is a sin. Some people make that claim. That a person like me who believes that sin is important, that I would meet a greeter, meet people coming in my church just as I did to this morning, 
and say, thank you for coming to our church. But by the way, do you know that we believe X is a sin? I know of no orthodox traditional pastor that would ever do that. But yet that claim has been made. Also, a loss and accountability. The current language in the discipline says uh, ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted by our ministers and shall not be conducted in our churches. Yet Bishop Melvin Talbert came into this conference in 2013 and performed such a wedding, even though our own bishop expressly asked him not to do that. A complaint was filed against him, but as usual, a just resolution was arrived upon and he promised to never do it again. But in 2016, guess what he did? In the document entitled, Leading Now and Into the Future, Our Vision, Bishop Laurie Holler of the Iowa Conference and her cabinet said, to put it clearly, pastors will be able to choose weddings that they officiate as long as it's two consenting adults who have been counseled. Likewise, church leadership and consultation with their pastors will be able to determine their own policy regarding, regarding weddings. In a statement entitled, The Welcoming Table, Bishop Sue Harper Johnson, who took a vow to defend our discipline along with the cabinet of the North Georgia Conference wrote, we believe the harmful language about LGBTQ people and the restrictions on marriage and ordination should be removed from the Book of Discipline. Also, our current discipline states, while persons set apart for the church of ordained ministry are subject to the frailties of human condition and the pressures of society, they are required to maintain the highest standards of holy living in the world. The practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Therefore, self-avowed practicing homo homosexuals are not to be certified as candidate, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. Yet in 2016, Karen Alavito, a practicing lesbian who was married to her female partner, was elected as bishop in the Western jurisdiction. She remains a bishop in the United Methodist Church despite a judicial council releasing a rule that her election was in violation of the discipline. Additionally, bishops Robert Moshamba, Manera Catarno, Grant Hilgaya, and Elaine Stanovoski, as well as Carol Aravito, signed what was called the Safe Harbor Declaration in November of 2019. In this document, they say they are unwilling and unable to exercise the office of bishop that to exclude LGBTQ people from being fully included in the community of the church. And we do not intend to hold or challenge ordination based solely on a person's gender or sexual orientation. We are unwilling to punish clergy who celebrate the marriage of two adults of any gender or sexual orientation. Furthermore, this past June, Two practicing homosexuals were brought forth in the Florida Conference for ordination in block-style voting. While when Orthodox conservatives asked that each person be voted on individually so that, so that 14 of the 16 could be approved, Bishop Ken Carter refused and the entire class was turned down. 
Also, Bishop John Skoll of the Greater New Jersey Conference stated he would not uphold the discipline concerning the practice of uh, prohibiting the practicing homosexuals becoming, from becoming pastors in the United Methodist Church. And probably the one you know the most, the Great Illinois Conference, uh, who ordained, or excuse me, who approved the candidate, uh, Isaac uh, Simmons, who preaches as Miss Penny Cost, as a drag queen. And I've given you a site to hear what this person says. This person says God is nothing, the Bible is nothing, and uses very foul language regarding that. Yet, despite all of this, none of these leaders who have vowed as elders and bishops to uphold the discipline are accountable, held accountable for their actions. The College of Bishops is a self-policing body that always seems to look the other way, and currently there's no way of really holding them accountable. However, this is interesting to me, however, when an Orthodox United Methodist Bishop, Mike Lowry, chose to help the Global Methodist Church, he was asked by the College of Bishops to resign from the Council of Bishops. A loss of orthodoxy in our official seminaries. As long as I have been a United Methodist pastor, I have felt the pressure to make sure my church pays its apportionments because the powers that be say that doing so, we support missions and ministries around the world. And I know that that is partly true. But what, all, what about all the money that is used to pay and support many of our agencies that are more political than spiritual? Or how about the fact that, that at the Isla School of Theology, whose course values do not even mention God the Father, God the Son, or Holy Spirit, yet has devoted one class to queer spirituality in the, art, in the arts, an official United Methodist Seminary. Among its student body are people who do not even profess Christianity, yet this is an official United Methodist Seminary. Also, at Duke Divinity School, official United Methodist Seminary, held a pride worship service on March 2nd of this year, where one student said that God is a queer God. The United Methodist Church claims that it does not control what is taught in its official United Methodist seminaries. They claim that because students are allowed to get federal funds, they must allow various non-Christian courses to be held on their campus. But what about what the average congregant may not know is that from your apportionments is something called the MEF, Methodist Education Fund. And what happens with that money is 75% of every dollar that is spent to the MEF goes only to the United Methodist Seminaries. And the money that persons such as myself only get a quarter of that dollar. None of the official money went to my seminary, yet it produces a huge amount of Methodist pastors because Asbury chooses not, is not a United Methodist seminary. And yet, I think it's interesting that students that attended Asbury also got, were eligible for federal monies, but you never hear of all these things happening on their campus. 
I find it interesting that the United, the University Senate of the United Methodist Church, which approved official United Methodist seminaries that are teaching unbiblical things, such as was mentioned, yet they would not approve Beeson Seminary in Birmingham, where I was wanting to go at one time, that had built Methodist studies, or Gordon Cromwell in Massachusetts that was removed several years ago, 1998, despite its uh, ties to Methodism and United Methodists who want to matriculate there. I believe it is not over small things like the mode of baptism, because, but because of seminaries' conservative views. For me, the mode of baptism is small versus what we're dealing with now. And finally, our local pastors are forced to go to official United Methodist seminaries to do their course of study. But schools such as Asbury Theological Seminaries have not been approved for them to matriculate. And they're forced to go along with the progressivist agenda to some degree when they are required to sign an agreement that they will use gender-neutral language referring to God even though the Lord Jesus provided us to call God Father. Now let me stop there for just a second. It is not about God being a male. It's about God not being a pantheistic God, some God who lives in the rocks and trees. Jesus invites us to call God Father not because of his maleness, but that God is whom one with whom we can have a relationship. Yet, my friend that goes to Canada was forced to sign this statement. So how is that neutral? The definition of Christian marriage and the attempt to change the discipline. As mentioned, our current discipline prohibits any United Methodist clergy from performing same-sex marriage. Yet there have been numerous instances where pastors and even bishops have violated their prohibition. Some have met strong disciplinary action, but the recent trend is to give a wink and a nod while slapping those who do so on the wrist. And the various, various groups, such as the Reconciling Network, seem to remove the prohibition, seek to remove the prohibitions within our discipline. One pastor who supports same-sex marriage said he wanted to stay part of the United Methodist Church because he wants to see the prohibition against same-sex marriage drop because he defined the love between two same-sex persons in a not monogamous relationship as holy love. Yet it was Jesus who defined Christian marriage as being between a man and a woman in Matthew 19. But the progressives will say that Jesus wasn't defining what constitutes marriage. He was dealing with the issue of divorce. Thus, orthodox and progressives will never agree on this issue. Here's one that sounds a little harsh. And maybe it is, but this is because of some things I've personally experienced. I don't believe the empty promises that orthodox traditionalists will be respected in the post-separation Methodist Church. Many bishops and other leaders within the United Methodist Church, as many persons within our own conference, believe that we are better together. Many have touted that the progressive, centrist, and orthodox Christians will have a place in the United Methodist Church. And while that may be true in the laity, I no longer be to be true in, for orthodox conservative pastors. While I was praying we're to, about a seminary to attend, my district superintendent at the time applied great pressure on me 
to attend Candler in Atlanta instead of Asbury. And when I told him where I was going, he got very angry at me and said, you just don't want to go to Candler because you're afraid your theology will be threatened. When I was preparing to move my family to a family of six to Kentucky to serve a four-point charge that only paid me $14,200 a year, I attempted to see some other churches would help from this conference would help me. And I don't mean any offense by this. I'm not going to mention a name, but this did happen. So I mean no offense to this church. You probably never knew it. But I talked with the pastor of the church at this time and was told that this church only supported people who were going to Candler. When I sought help from a church near in Chelsea, a group that decided to help me from another Methodist church said they were doing so despite their pastor's wishes, for he had told them that they should not support anybody who was going to Asbury. Also in a meeting in the north central jurisdiction, a key leader of the centrists publicly announced his determination to block the ordination of any Asbury graduate. I, will know, I know that some say these arguments cannot be used for they are hearsay because there's no supporting documentation. As a history major at Montevallo, I was taught that the best, resource, best resources are primary ones from people who were there and experienced the events. These things happened to me and I can testify that what I'm saying is true. Also, when the district superintendent in Florida, Jay Terrell, was helping pastors and churches to work with the Wesley Covenant Association, Bishop Ken, Ken Carter demanded his resignation. He went on a sabbatical, and during this time, he spoke to various churches about the WCA. When attempting to return from his time away, he was told by the bishop in his cabinet he could only return to active ministry if he supplied the names of every church where he had spoken. About two years ago, I was attending a meeting of WCA pastors at a larger church in Greater Birmingham, where a retired conservative district superintendent, and it's not our most recent one from this area, stood up and said that he wanted to apologize to those of us in the room, because for years he was on the appointed cabinet. It was, it was apparent that only liberal progressives are held in higher regard with this annual conference. He went on to say that many of us in the room had never been given larger appointments because of our theology. Given this history, how could I or any Orthodox traditionalist pastor expect that we will ever be treated equal with progressives? Most all the Orthodox pastors that I know are planning on leaving the nomination soon. Therefore, across this conference, you can assume you will be getting a centrist or theological progressive person as your pastor. And finally, I am weary of the never-ending fight that is destroying our Christian witness. I'm considering leaving the United Methodist Church because I'm tired of this never-ending fight. Progressives can call someone like me a homophobe, bigot, and hater, which, by the way, I forgot to read this line. I have a really good friend who is well known in this conference. Uh, he is from Zimbabwe. And he has stood up and taken a traditionalist stance at conference many times. And he has told me of all the foul things he's gotten called in emails because he took that stance. 
So people would call someone like me a homophobe, bigot, and hater. Yet within my own family, my youngest, precious Kayla, someone whom I love with all my heart, identifies as bisexual. I could never hate her. Pastors like me are considered intolerant and mean. Yet progressive colleagues don't want to Want to, do not want to tolerate our beliefs and opinions, we are vilified as unchristian, unchristian. And I just mentioned about the person hate mail. He told me, we were told that we should stay because it seems we are welcome to stay if we remain quiet. Hear this again. We're told that we should stay, that we're better together. But what we conservatives here in the past that we're to stay if we were a man white and do not take a stand about what we believe is wrong. The teaching and preaching of King Christ and our progressive friends believe that we're pushing legalism. The battle has gone on too long, and if we stay together, it will not, uh, it will not do us any good. And I use the word battle for a reason. Because that's what's happened. I've given you some sites that you can look. For example, in 2012 General Conference, where a group of progressive pastors led by a lesbian clergy literally disrupted and stopped the whole annual conference and would not yield until the presiding bishop yielded to her demands. And this has been documented. It's in your thing. Also, I'm, I'm, it is... Also, it is easy to see the extreme stress that continues as you watch the videos from our 2019 special call General Conference. Thus, this ongoing struggle will never stop as long as we stay together until either the traditionalists throw up our hands and surrender but still pay our required apportionments. And as we continue to fight, we destroy the message of Jesus. I believe it's time to go our separate ways, to bless each other, to make our disciples in the way we believe is best. And I say let us do as Paul and Barnabas did and go our separate ways to reach the best world as we can. And then Sammy asked me to answer one more question. I thought about this a lot. If my church, and it's their decision, not mine, if my church disaffiliates, what would my hopes be? Three simple things. The God the Father is glorified. The God the Son would be held on high for who he is as the one who frees us from the bondage of our flesh and assures us of a restored relationship with whom God is proclaimed and he is the truth, the life, and the way. And that through the Holy Spirit, God would bring new people to our church and that he would bring a great fire to our church and people from our community would come to watch us burn. Can we pray? Lord, I know that these are harsh things, difficult things to hear. But Lord, I was invited to come. I've shared what you told me to share and what's on my heart. And now, Lord, I just ask for your help as I answer questions. In Jesus' name, amen.
take one of these and I'm going to give one to Mark. Get it turned on there. Here. Oh, I'm way over on it. All right. It is, um, it's a little bit before, it's about seven minutes till, so we'll still have 30 minutes worth of question and answer time for Pastor D if you, if you need them. If you want to ask a question, um, raise your hand like we're in school, and I'll, I'll come and bring you the mic. You're, so you're coming from a different view, and we admit that, Karen. I believe that homosexuality is a sin. If two persons come and they want to raise the child to be a Christian, and yet they don't repent of what the Bible calls a sin, then I could not. In fair, that would be like a couple coming to me, a heterosexual couple, that's saying we want to have our child baptized, but we're never going to raise them in the church. So I, I wouldn't, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Yes. I've always felt safe in this beautiful, holy place that we're in. As a child, a youth, and even now I look around and see so many faces of adults who have made me feel safe. Have you estimated how much harm the global Methodist will cause to the LGBTQIA plus youth who are already picked on in school? Would they feel unaffirmed at church too? I think I've already answered that question. My definition of love is that we warn people of the consequences of sin, but not out of trying to be a hot shot or think we're better than anybody. But if the Bible defines something as sin, we don't go along with it. But the idea of ever uh, demeaning people is something I forgot to mention, for example, that I was on the conference uh, board for race and religion. Uh, I'm, I don't believe in being derogatory toward people, but I, I also know that uh, you mentioned harm to the community, but we, went, we had a thing a while back, the conference after the 2019 the, the traditional plan which came through, and we were brought to Clear Branch, and we had this big thing that they bemoaned the harm to the homosexual community, and, and I understand that. But it seems that it's okay for people to harm people with the orthodox belief of the faith, but it's not okay to harm somebody from the other side of the spectrum. We shouldn't be harming anybody. And that is the very reason why we are going to have to split. That's the whole reason behind this. So that there won't be harm anymore. Uh, Pastor D, can you hear me? Um, I think that you made it clear, and we've always had open arms and welcome people into this church just like, yes. just like Rainbow City Methodist did. And I think whichever way it goes, I don't see that changing. That Absolutely really, That not. really isn't the issue. 
at all. But my real question is, if Rainbow City or First Methodist decided to, to uh, disaffiliate with United Methodist, I've had a lot of people, because I'm on the task force, ask me what, uh, it's unclear to them how it would happen. In other words, I think that if you disaffiliate, if the majority votes to disaffiliate, then the church becomes then a first Methodist church and they either choose to go global or free Methodist, whereas if they uh, stay, they remain United Methodist. But I think people have the image of actually physically having to move out of a building. No, that's one of the things that's unique about this particular situation. You have all of us are forced to being used paragraph 2553, which is new to the discipline, and that's the one all the bishops are saying it's the only one we can use. And it has a time lapse that ends December 31st, 2023. After that closes, I don't know of any way you can get out without a high cost. But if you disaffiliate right now, you will have to pay some things like the unfunded pension liability. If you were behind on last year's apportionments and this year's apportionments, you got to pay those. But once you fully, and, and then it's going to go, if, let's just say hypothetically y'all voted to disaffiliate. Then it's got to go to our special called uh, annual conference on December the 10th. And at that point, you would be released. And at that point, your property is fully yours. There is no trust clause. And if you stay independent, you still control it. Or <clears throat> let's say you go to Global or Free Methodist. They both still allow you. You do not have a trust clause unless in the Free Methodist, we learn this, if you build something new, you have to put a trust clause in it. But in the Global Methodist Church, there's no trust clause. So suppose you decided you're going to try Global Methodist and five years from now you think this is not for us. You can come out of Global Methodist without having to pay any money and you can be independent. But you do not have to leave this property. Pastor Day, I want to go back to the first question, um, which I think was referring to infant baptism. And in my mind, at least, that's more of an affirmation of the parents than the child. Yes, yes. If that same child continues to attend with those parents and they decide to come to a relationship with Christ, would you then accept them into the church Absolutely. and baptize them at that point? Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, you were talking about the high cost of leaving after 2000, the end of 2023. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with our son's church in Hampton Cove, but but they are they were started strictly as a, a contemporary service, contemporary church, and they've had the same pastor for over 20 years. But they decided early on they were gonna they were gonna leave the Methodist Church. They have already gotten an estimate on what it would cost them to leave, and it was like 1.1 or 1.2 million. Yeah, some churches is extremely high. There's so no doubt about it. What, what would you estimate the average cost to be? Oh, that would be, here's about what I figured it out. It has a lot to do with 
how long your church has had full-time pastors at what level salary? So chances are the cost of this church's disaffiliation for the unfunded part is going to be higher than Rainbow City's. Just like Rainbow City's is higher than Horton's, Horton's Bend. I, I, I don't fully understand it. Scott Selman went over it with me three or four times, but he might as well have been talking German to me because I just couldn't get it. Uh, like ours, I think now, since it's dropped, it's uh, around 75000 where it was like 98000 It's dropped some, but I have no idea. Your discernment team would have to tell you what it would cost here. Okay. Our son was involved in all the negotiations. Back, uh, and that, that's what they got it down to. Yeah. yeah so, still steep. There's no doubt about it. Yes. I just wondered how it's high or how low. It's well, I do down. know one church has already voted disaffiliate that Robin Scott's at, uh, our largest church, Asbury and Madison. Oh, correct me, y'all that heard it. Wasn't it, was it five or two? Two million dollars they're having to pay. What happened to the original agreement for the disbursement of assets? Oh, you talking about the uh, protocol? Yes, sir. Oh, that's a good story. And I've, did, I've given you some information in this other packet. The protocol was put together as a way to try to have a, 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 an amicable separation. It had worked out where uh, certain entities like the Global Methodists that were going to leave the Methodists would receive $25 million from the United Methodist Church. And somebody said, well, why is that? Well, guess what? These people that want to start Global Methodists were paying the money into the pot, too. Well, they had all this worked out, and then we had COVID. Then we had COVID again. Then this past year, what led to the launching of the Global Methodist Church and you'll have to read the reference, is they said it was COVID again. And yet one of the very persons that was on the team for uh, the, count, the council on uh, general conference resigned the following day saying that is not true. They just didn't want to have it. And it's because they did not want the, the protocol to pass. And now some of the original signers have withdrawn their support of it. And some of them have passed away since then. The, I've got a question. The, I know the pension fund, the unfunded pension fund, and, and you, you, the pastors have their pension built in. Is that, are you expecting to lose some pension by leaving the church? Uh, the, it, it, my intention, again, this is my intention, is to become a global Methodist pastor, and they already have a fund worked out with Westpath that uh, it, it'll, be, it'll operate a little differently than the current one through the United Methodist Church, but I'm fully vested in the United Methodist Pension. I've been putting in it for years, and, and I'm already sure I'll get that. We do. Let me, let me just say, uh, we, we do have a figure for what it would cost for us, and, and I'll invite you um, afterwards to ask uh, a member of our task force, and they can give you that. 
Um, so so we, we do have, it's not a question mark. And to George's question, uh, nobody, nobody's going to lose their, their pension if they stay or if they leave. And um, that's, that's what I've been assured by the people, by Scott Selman and people I talked to at West Bath. This kind of feels like standing out in the middle of the street in your underwear. <laughs> hey, I'm from Alabama City, y'all. We're lint heads. We just say it like it is on that. Will the global church keep the slogan, open doors, open minds? No, that won't be a slogan. I don't really know what the, I, I've seen it, but I don't remember exactly what the slogan's gonna be. Uh, the United Methodist Church has a, a body that uh, validates seminaries mm -hmm. and has certain standards that those seminaries must meet for uh, support of the United Methodist Church. And Asbury was uh, evaluated and uh, the committee felt like that they did not meet the standards but they weren't the only seminary. Uh, that, that, I was allowed to go there, brother. It met the standards while I was there. But they, uh, you know, the, the ruling was, I think, go to Asbury, but then there may be certain courses that you would have to take uh, at other places to qualify to meet all of your requirements to be a United Methodist minister. Is that correct? I can't answer truthfully about that. My argument is, though, why are we worried about what Asbury's teaching and we're not worried about what Isla's teaching? Well, I don't know that, I, I can't answer that either. So, yeah. uh, evidently you have an answer. Uh, and I'm a little concerned how you throw about the term uh, orthodoxy when I consider myself to be orthodox in my beliefs, uh, but yet uh, I do not consider myself to be uh, far right conservative. Uh, I, I try to find the truth wherever it is. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, like I say, I consider it myself orthodox, and I'm interested to know what your definition of orthodoxy Someone is. Someone who stands with a 2,000-year uh, understanding of Scripture. And tradition. Yeah. And experience. The quadrilateral, yeah. but tradition, I mean, Scripture is... But I do want to make this clear because some people that are meaning to try to label somebody like me as a fundamentalist. I'm not a fundamentalist, nor am I a right-wing fanatic. I am simply someone who believes as I believe, just as you're welcome to believe as you believe. Right, so will uh, homosexuals be, can be ordained then as pastors in the uh, GMC? Practicing homosexuals will not be able to be ordained which is no different from the UMC. Currently. Well, uh, it's also currently in the GMC. Yeah, but, but, but what, here's another thing. The, the progressives are saying, well, we're not changing our discipline. It's true, the first front part of the discipline is not gonna be changed. But what good is it if you have a discipline and the bishops go against it and then they're, viola they're allowed to violate it and nothing ever happens? What good is what we put on paper? And so uh, nothing like that could possibly happen in the GMC. I can't answer that because it's not, I'm not there yet. Right. I think I have a big enough voice that everybody can hear me. How many times has the, 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 How many times has the uh, Global Methodist changed 
number one, their book of discipline so far when they started this process? They are working on the transitional book of discipline. That is I know out. for a fact they've changed it already four times. So how many more times before you They're getting finally anywhere. get it? Well, so the church itself, when that initial meeting, can the persons that want to be part of the Global Methodist Church have a voice in the final say of what it's going to be. But they had to have something to get started with. Anybody else have a, a question they'd like to offer? All right. If not, we will, we will break and we will come back in here at 4, we'll start back at 4.30. How about that? Um, refreshments outside this uh, door, restrooms outside this door, and we'll see you back in here in a little bit.